Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 97 with Andy Mitchell. Andy is a software guru who has spent so much time thinking about emails and task management and how they intersect. So he's got some brilliance that he shared with us, including one, why email won't die for a while and what to do in the meantime. Two, why we experience euphoria at an empty inbox and how to get there more often. And three, how to avoid the productivity death spiral triggered by working late. So if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've discussed, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep97. And while you're there, I recommend you take a look at some of the other cool offerings we have handy at awesomeatyourjob.com. And in particular, I would draw your attention to a special I'm running right now on training. So my Enhanced Thinking and Collaboration program, the one that has shown to have about a 1.4 hour reduction per team member per week in time wasted due to having more effective means of communicating succinctly and collaborating such that there's less rework needs to happen. That I am offering a $1,000 discount off. I'm calling it the honeymoon special as I'm wrapping up my honeymoon when this episode releases. So if you reach out to me with some interest in potentially doing that program with your team in 2017, here, before 2016 ends, we're going to reduce $1,000 off the price. So there's that. And we got some other cool free stuff, including the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course and Gold Nugget email summaries from the guests and other cool stuff. So check it out. But for now, check out Andy. Andy Mitchell is the founder of Active Inbox for Gmail, an email tool and task manager combined into one. He maintains an ethos of leaving more in the world than he takes out of it. Day by day, he's trying to ensure his team is all pulling in the same direction to craft the best product possible. Prior to Active Inbox, he worked in a number of high-tech roles at Locally Compared, Productive Firefox, Dakin Flathers, and MeCard. Here's Andy. Andy, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. Well, so one of your major claims to fame is that you are the creator of behind the active inbox. Can you maybe just start us off with some orientation on the backstory there? What is this thing and what problem does it solve? So the very highest level active inbox is an email tool and a task manager combined into one. And if you stop and think for a second, you know, the major frustration people have with email is that it's chaotic. And so actually treating emails like a flow of tasks, or at least your inbox like a to-do list, for certainly for some people, you know, managers especially, does make a lot of sense. On the flip side, you've got task management tools. And if you're of a certain character, then you can handle the fact that there's something of a chore. But for everyone else, they require constant maintenance just to even make them usable. Mm-hmm. You're adding tasks to them and, and updating stuff, etc. Most people just, to be honest, probably can't be bothered. But what you get when you combine the two of them is email that's under control and a task manager that's doing quite a lot of the work to keep itself up to date by the notifications that are coming into your inbox. Because, of course, the inbox is often like where all the different tools and things in your life funnel notifications to you. So it's kind of a nice stream to pick things from and update the task list from. So that's at a functional level. It came to be by complete accident, 
I mean, I can go into that if you want, or we could stay more on the straight and narrow. Well, I'd like to hear maybe a little bit of the, I'm thinking about the infomercial moment, like, ah, are you tired of this problem? <laughs> like, what was going on in your life that made you think this is necessary? Do you want, do you want the absolute truth? Yeah. This is not the most commercially minded thing I've ever said. I was working on a different startup at the time, which was also my own baby. This was back in 2006. And we needed to be able to do customer support. And see, in England, there's a reputation amongst Northern people that we don't like to spend money. And being of a Northern persuasion, I thought, well, rather than you know, pay Zendesk or their equivalent $100 a month to do customer support, why don't I just build a little something over the top of Gmail that adds you know, essentially a ticketing system to my emails? I'm already using Gmail for customer support. My biggest issue is I forget to reply to things. If I can take care of that, job done. My own little system, it'll be free. Great. And I released this tiny little tool that I'd built for myself over a weekend into the wild. And sort of fast forwarding through two or three years, the first startup I was involved in crashed and burned. The second startup I was involved in that I got into on a rebound crashed and burned. And all the while, this tiny little tool that wasn't supposed to be anything was getting written up in magazines. People were asking to donate money, which I said no to because I didn't really seem like too much of a headache at the time. And yeah, it took me far too many years, Pete, to realize that the thing I was trying to make work was a non-starter. And the thing that I wasn't trying to make work seemed to be, you know, what I should actually put myself behind. And so, yeah, fast forward 10 years and that's where we're at. Wow. Okay. You brought up a cool point about how, you know, some people have it within them to update, maintain and rock a task management application independently of their email. But you're saying in your experience, these people are in the minority. And I guess I would just love to get your take on that a little bit. Because I mean, some folks will have, yes, their inbox is a to-do list or their calendar is a to-do list or they have a separate to-do list. I mean, I imagine you've put in a tremendous amount of thought about the pros and the cons of doing things one way or the other. So I would love to just put you on the spot and hear, well, <laughs> what are some of those insights when it comes to these trade-off moves? We've always been quite proud that Active Inbox has been built as part of a community, largely because I just knew early on that I didn't have the answers myself. And the more you talk to people, the more you realize that we're all hugely idiosyncratic. You know, we all have our own little ways of doing things. And I think that the sort of the takeaway aspect of that is there's a temptation with the toolmakers of which I am one to go, oh, wow, email, that's used by 4 billion people. Let's try and get all of them. Or with task management, you know, who wouldn't benefit theoretically from a task manager? Let's get all of them. And it's, it's like, you know, it's the, it's the light that attracts the moth. But the reality is there are so many people that what we should be doing is building niche tools for a small number of them, and niche tools that can be completely supported. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't advocate Active Inbox for absolutely everyone. But for the people that it's good for, it's especially good. And I think where broad products, so things like Google Inbox, for example, they work really well for the majority of light email users, which mm -hmm. makes perfect sense for Google, right? Because they want to sell to, or not sell, but they want you know, to be able to advertise to millions, ideally billions of people. But that's no good if you're a power user who Google's not interested in because you're a minority. So I think that's where we're coming from is it's okay to build for a niche. And for us, that's managers, executives, and sort of superpower users. But I completely concede there's different characters and personality types where a, a standard task manager is fine because, you know, they're the people who, and I'm incredibly jealous of them, who just stay on top of things. They're super organized. They produce lists. They finish lists. They, you know, they do their weekly reviews. But that's not everyone. Yeah. So that's where 
my mindset is coming from. Well, that is interesting. And so I hear what you're saying is that if you're in a position where your emails are largely to-dos that need to just get a little bit of sorted and tagging and categorizing and due dated such that to bring it sort of the rest of the way to making it a task manager, that makes great sense. Whereas other folks, their emails are, I guess, maybe more varied and they have plenty of tasks that are coming in from sort of other sources, then it may not be hitting the bullseye for them. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think certainly in the last, oh, I'm not sure, five years, maybe more, there's people are just waiting for email not to die for the most part. Okay. You know, people are just sick of it. For some people, it's the nature of their jobs. And for them, if you told them email was dying, they absolutely would not agree. And what we kind of boiled that down to was if you're in a position where you're a mediator of some kind between multiple teams. So say you're a, an operations director you're going to be liaising with a sales team. You're going to be liaising with a product team. You're going to be liaising with external vendors to the company. And the product team might have bought themselves something like Jira to use. The sales team might be using Salesforce. The outside vendor, I mean, you can only talk to them through email. And the point being, when you're straddling all these different teams using different systems, email is the only common denominator. Right. Your inbox is the only hope you've got. And so for those people, there is no way out of email. And it is what drives their daily workflow. And so those are the power users that I think need this concept of blending tasks and emails into one. Other people, of course, will probably think the idea is ridiculous. And frankly, if they never have to open an email client again, they will be deliriously happy. Well, that's fun. And that's a great way to call that out as the common denominator across all sorts of teams or groupings. And it's so funny. I even see it when some people just send me a calendar request. It's like, hey, I don't work for your organization. I <laughs> like this isn't quite going to work, but almost click, click, download, download, double click, ooh, delete, duplicate. Okay, now I have it on my calendar. Thank you. So it really does resonate. And so I guess I'm curious. That was an intriguing notion that email is dying. I'm curious to hear what will take its place and what are some sort of best practices for dealing with email as it continues to exist? <laughs> well, for starters, it's a shame it's dying, to be honest. It's the only open system, really, open communication system, sorry, that really still exists. And by open, I mean it's not controlled by one company. And so, you know, for example, with Slack, you can only use people, you can only talk to people who are also using Slack. Email is just like the friendliest guy at the bar. It's talking to everyone, <laughs> which is a metaphor that's just popped into my head is also probably why it's so bad. You know, you don't, it means you have to talk to every drunk going, which kind of explains your spam emails and everything else. Right. I mentioned Slack because it did position itself as the email killer originally. But even Stuart Butterfield, the founder of Slack, has admitted that it's going to take a decade at least for email to finally whistle its way down. As for what will replace it, you know, there's an idea in the startup world that you could just look at how any company uses the Excel spreadsheet and pick that particular use case and build a whole different product out of it. Hmm. And you'd have a winning business. And email's kind of got the same quality because it's used for everything. Just watch one little thing that people do, pick it out, do it better. And I think, yeah, as you've seen this kind of quite a lot, you saw it with Craigslist as well. You know, Airbnb has grown to be an insanely huge company by basically taking one of the bits that Craigslist did okay and perfected it. And so I think this is what will kill email. It'd be death by a thousand cuts. Hmm. Well, that's interesting theory. And it's intriguing because on the one hand, you know, studies come out showing that companies are getting kind of more and more and more emails kind of in total and per day. But so your prediction is that this will hit its summits, its peak level of then decline as superior 
innovations and solutions that take subsequent slices out of what email can do for people? It's yes, with the caveat that every future soothsayer of some kind has been wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not hard to find a way to do things better than email for specific cases. But again, this openness, I mean, I honestly don't know how that's going to get replaced. And for that reason, that reason only, email might be the thing that survives for the next 50 years. Who knows? It's not so bad. As long as people keep trying to innovate around it, then, then, yeah, I'm fine with that. I think it's all is good. And so then when you're the individual person who's giving and receiving email after email, day after day, what have you discovered are some you know, best practices or pro tips for doing that well and hitting inbox zero more often? You know, this ties to something that's been bugging me at a, at a much higher level. And it's going to take like just 30 seconds to stick it. it. Yeah. So we're living, I think it's the same in the US as it is in the UK. We're calling it austerity. The idea that as nations, we've lived too freely and, you know, we need to pay back our debts now. So everyone, corporations are using this to kind of get employees to work harder, get them to work longer. Job security is down. And so, you know, oh, if you want to keep that job, you better do the extra hours. You better do the extra work. And we're all just feeling the pressure a little bit. And I think that, I can't remember the stat I saw, in, I think it was in the Washington Post, something like 28% of our day is spent in email. And so it strikes me like a, it's a rich scene, like an old fashioned gold mine somewhere mm-hmm. for actually managing to recuperate some time back. And I think if you're trying to decide, okay, how, you know, all these different tools I can use for email, which one should I go for? Anything that can save you time, including it's kind of indirect bits, like, you know, if it reduces your stress, that's a form of time saving. That's the best thing you can hope for. That's what you should optimize for. Sort of be concrete about that. Forgive me, because I am going to be at risk of talking about out to inbox, because obviously we did try to make it to do these kind of things. So it's top of mind. The one thing I'm really against is snoozing, which is slightly controversial, because obviously it has taken the world by storm. Undeniably, all modern mail apps now snooze. But we tried it years ago. We tried it in 2012 or something. It never got past beta, where we tested with a few hundred people. And what we saw was that people would snooze something. They'd throw it a day forward, two days forward, and then it would come back into their inbox and then they'd snooze it again. But in the meantime, they're also snoozing other things and they're creating this kind of tidal wave of email ahead of them where they keep throwing it back out and it keeps coming back, but more of it's coming back Mm. and it never quite gets done. And this was, everyone was doing this and maybe sort of the culture's changed and people have got better at snoozing. But I think, you know, if you ask my own experiences, I still do it if I use an app that can snooze. And so it feels like, a solution. It's almost like, you know, having a beer feels great for a minute, but then you pay the price down the line. And so what we advocate is a today list, which as a concept is incredibly simple. So we say, look, if something has to be done today or, you know, in the future, actually say what day you're going to do it and then have your today list always in front of you, but away from your inbox. And so you can just focus on that without the distraction of all the stuff that's kind of coming in and sort of pulling at the edges of your brain to pay attention to me, pay attention to me. Nope, Mm -hmm. we're going to focus on our today list. We're going to go for it and we're going to try and empty it out. So again, it's rather than growing like snoozing does, it just keeps shrinking. And I think in terms of keeping people calm and stress-free, that's really, really important. I'm sure you've heard of Merlin Mann, who's the chap that coined Inbox Zero as a term. And I can't quite do his quote justice but he sums it up beautifully when he says all those emails that are in your inbox they're not things to be done they're little weights on your brain holding you down and achieving an empty inbox that's not emptying your emails that's clearing your brain and i think that that's so important because you know more and more we live in this interruption culture where 
emails are coming in and we might be doing creative work, but suddenly we go and check, see what that e- email is. Or, you know, we worry about what we've missed in our inboxes. And it's always just kind of eating away at the back of our brains. And again, it's stopping us creating, you know, whatever meaningful things that we like to actually invest ourselves into. It's kind of reducing us as people. So, yeah, I think, you know, what does that actually mean in terms of practical advice? Find a tool that means you just don't have to think about your email. So for us, you know, with Active Inbox, you can say, okay, this email here, I'm going to do it tomorrow. This email here is part of this project, but get it out of my inbox. And it's just a way of saying everything that's important has been seen, is being tracked, and I will do it. And so I don't need to worry about it. Ah. Yes. The only other little thing is, again, it's another feature that we pioneered. So with Gmail especially, you know, it has its conversation views where you get maybe 20 emails or 20 messages within a conversation. And that's a mass of information. So if you came back to an email in two days' time, you don't want to reread something that you've already read. And so we encourage you to summarize all the actionable things that you want to do with an email when you first read it into subtasks. And they sit just next to the email. So next time you come back, you don't need to reread anything. You can go, oh, okay, you know, there's one, two, three things for me to do. Cool. I'll just crack on with it. So yeah, off the top of my head, those are sort of the best time savers I think we've seen. Oh, that's cool. And so with each subtask, I can sort of tag that to a project and a context and a due date? It's there attached to the emails mm-hmm. and the emails themselves can be attached to a project. And then when you're looking at the project view, you can see the emails and you can see the first subtask on the email. So it's all very scannable when it's in a list. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Well, and you made a fun noise. <laughs> I want to follow up on a noise that you made as opposed to a comment that you made when you said, you know, you've processed all of the emails and you don't have to think about it and they're settled and you go, ah, so the, ah, I want to hear a bit more about like, you know, what are the true benefits in the experience of you and I'm sure all of the users that you've kind of interviewed and chatted with associated with having that kind of you know, command clarity control of, hey, I've been through the muck of all the inputs, I've processed it all, and they're in their places. What does that really mean or do for you, practically speaking, as a human being and a professional? You see, it's, it would be very easy for me to just say, stress is bad, stress <laughs> stops you being creative, you know, it releases cortisol, it makes our body go into fight or flight response, we become really flitty in how we think. Mm-hmm. And so the actual idea of sitting down and doing 30 minutes of work becomes really difficult. But actually, some people really genuinely do thrive best from stress. But I suspect there's different types of stress. The stress of a deadline, which can help focus you. And then the stress of a million little things that are spread all over the place that you have to worry about mm-hmm. and your brain just can't handle that volume of stuff, really. And because each of those items is so small, you don't really worry about any individual one of them. So it feels more like an anxiety it's like, I know there are these things. I can't think of anything specific, but I know there are these things. And it just sits there kind of just weighing on your heart and your, on your chest. And so I think that silly noise that I made, that ah, that's the feeling of that pressure coming off your chest, of knowing that there's not those millions of little things possibly out there. It's knowing that there are tens of things that are out there, but they're under control. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Then you can get on with doing whatever it is is actually important to you. That's exactly how I feel when my inbox is getting a little out of control, you know, at about 200 plus. It's just like there's this uncertainty, like I may have overlooked something important (laughs) and someone could be disgusted with me right now because I have failed to answer a basic question. And they're like, aren't I paying this guy a lot of money? (laughs) Who is this joker? (laughs) 
Exactly. And it's, that's the other thing, of course. It's not just tasks like it is in a task manager. It's communication, which has all manner of social connotations. And we're deeply, deeply social animals. And so the idea of letting down a tribe's mate is, you know, that in itself is so powerful and so full of fear that, again, it's going to impact us. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that before, but yeah, that social aspect does make a huge difference. Well, and so now, I guess, before we shift gears into some of your favorite things, I'd love to just maybe do a catch-all. Any other key systems or practices or pro tips you recommend for doing less while achieving more? I worry about sounding glib when we talk about this, but often the simplest answers are the most effective. (laughs) I'm going to stand up like as if I was some sort of AA meeting. I used to be a workaholic. Mm-hmm. And looking back, I don't actually think I achieved particularly more in the long hours than I did in the short. There's some sort of famous quote, I can't quite bring it to uh, mind, of the task expands to fill whatever time you give them. Oh, Parkinson's Law, yeah. It's, it's Parkinson's Law. And so one of the biggest changes I ever got was to actually start making sure each of my evenings was filled with either a social commitment or a hobby, something that would force me to leave the office at 6 or 7 p.m. in the evening. And... If you just often think about the opposite of that, if you stay into the evening, you're not going to be doing your best work. So you're slowing down anyway. So you're starting to panic more. So maybe you stay even later. But then you can't get to sleep. So, you know, now you're starting to really cost yourself because if you go straight from the office to bed, you're going to be sat in bed for an hour or two just staring at the ceiling, thinking about all the things that are in there. Sleep as a knock-on effect, an incredibly important thing. Without a great night's sleep, the first thing to go, I think, if my memory serves me, is creativity. And so you start working more stupidly in terms of you still work hard, but now you're just on the treadmill just doing work, work, work. Whereas a creative person might go, yeah, you know what, rather than doing all that kind of piecework over there, if I just do this one thing, I step all of it. And that's what you lose when you're sleep deprived. So going back all along that chain of events, finding a way to get yourself out of the office and ideally to do something physical so you get the endorphin rush that completely just seems to flush the brain of worry and academic anguish. Yeah, you're clear. You can get sleep when you need to, and you're good to go. Oh, that's quite a clear crystallization of the kind of anti-productive, work-too-hard death spiral. Yeah, it's so easy to fall into, Pete. That's the thing. It's, you know, I'm sure you've been there. Oh, yes, and you've made those connections so clear in terms of leads to less sleep, leads to less creativity, leads to more work. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been in places where I'm on a nice upward cycle, And then I'm on a downward cycle. And I think just having that language and identification can be helpful to kind of shift gears quickly and slap some sense into yourself. That's really interesting to me right now, which is the idea of upward cycles and downward cycles. Have you read a book called The Winner Effect? No, but it sounds right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a really cheesy title. It's one of those things, you know, I'd put a brown bag over it if I was reading it on the train. <laughs> but despite that, it's just chock-a-block with science. I mean, a lot of the stuff in there is kind of mind-blowing. And one of the things that they talk about is the physiological changes that come with success and, as an inverse, comes with failure. And so when you have success, your body's capacity for testosterone production increases. So it's not that your testosterone levels increase and stay high, but it means that in future you can produce it faster and you can produce more of it. Hmm. And the opposite happens when you lose. And so what it means is there's a link between testosterone and confidence and doing well in many, many situations. And so our bodies kind of, it has this very physiological feedback loop where small successes lead to bigger successes. And yeah, I mean, in terms of a sort of a system to utilize, 
finding us ways to have little wins, especially if you've been going through a bad patch for too many days where things aren't going right, you can kind of reset it, find something where you can succeed and do it. And the example that gets used in the book is Mike Tyson. So when Tyson came out of prison in, I don't know, I was too young at the time, but in 91, 92, Don King found a way for him to fight some real softies in the ring. And Tyson beat them easily. Confidence improves. All the physiological changes were there as well. So by the time he faced the world champ, six months later, he entered that ring absolutely on top of his game. And it's not a waste of time to do small things you know you can succeed at. And the only other caveat I would add to that, that again is in the book, and it's fascinating, and then do stop me if this is not useful, but it's that all of this stuff happens in context. So the environment really matters. And we get good in certain environments, but that ability doesn't necessarily translate. So, you know, you might be useful to winning in the office, but it's not going to make you successful in the sports field, for example. And the really enlightening research they pointed to was during the Vietnam War, a lot of the US soldiers, one in five, were getting addicted to heroin. Wow. But then when they were back to the States, suddenly they were dying of overdoses, whereas before they had not. And what they later proved uh, with dubious ethics with rats was that if you got a rat addicted to heroin in a blue cage and then moved the rat to a green cage that kept the dosage as high as it had been before in the blue cage, the rat was statistically more likely to die of an overdose. Huh. So... It's hugely counterintuitive, the idea that, you know, we think of drug addiction certainly as you either have it or you don't, and you're habituated or you aren't. But no, apparently not. It, something as simple as the color of your cage can make a huge difference to how your body responds. Well, that is fascinating. Wow. My apologies if I went too far off. Oh, no, there. I'm going to chew on that for a while. <laughs> Thank you. So, well, now I'd love to hear about perhaps a favorite quote. Once I realized that really it's just we're all basically victims of a cultural change that as humans, we were capable of believing that we could be collectively rewarded or individually rewarded. Then I thought, you know, actually, it's okay to be kind to yourself. And so the quote that I'm going to go for is, and forgive me because I can't sing this, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. And the idea that imperfection isn't necessarily a problem, it could in fact be the path to who you are or who you could be. So yeah, there we go. Oh, thank you. That's cool and fun. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite habit, something that you've done as a personal practice that's been helpful? Yeah, it's kind of that Seinfeld-esque, do one thing a day. Again, it comes back to often, if you don't challenge yourself to do as much as possible, you kind of get yourself off the grindstone. You know, it could be that doing one creative thing is 10 times as valuable as doing 10 small ones. Mm -hmm. The problem with the small ones is they feel like work. So you feel like you are succeeding, whereas doing one thing can feel quite lazy. But yeah, if you can somehow manage to adopt a true understanding of the value of what you're doing, then yeah, just finding one important thing to do every day is my personal habit. Oh, thank you. And would you say, is there a key thing that you share in terms of if you're speaking or working with your teams that really seems to resonate and get people nodding their heads and agreeing with your brilliance? Uh, rarely. <laughs> <laughs> brilliance and my pontifications rarely go hand in hand. It's never going to get the team nodding its head, but there is a really powerful notion. Have you come across a book called The Happiness Hypothesis? It's a psychologist who wrote it. Um, the principle of the book, by the way, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. He took 10 ideas from antiquity, so the teachings of Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, and tested them against cutting-edge modern psychology, brain scanning, or you know, all the sort of modern science we have, and basically summed up at the end of every chapter. Good advice from antiquity, bad advice from antiquity. Mm. So from that sense, it's fascinating. But the analogy that I found worked best is, so you know 
the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Right. Most people have read it. The idea of they talk very dryly. There's a system one and there's a system two. I might get this the wrong way around. The system one is our subconscious, super fast, responsible for making most of our decisions, happens without us in any way being able to control it. Then the system two that's kind of this super slow-witted, but very thoughtful. You know, that's our conscious thought where we decide to do something. And generally speaking, our subconscious is in control. So a lot of our behaviors day to day are happening without us really thinking about it. And it turns out that if you just slightly change the way you think about it, suddenly this becomes a powerful idea. And the way the book talks about it is the elephant and the rider, where the elephant is our subconscious. And that's the thing that's making all the rapid decisions in our world. And it's just bounding along, charging through the jungle, smashing through everything in its path. And the rider sat on top, basically holding on for dear life. And the rider's our conscious decision-making bit. And, you know, it's trying to persuade the elephant to go the way it wants it to, but really it doesn't have that much influence. But over just, yeah, you know, like an oil tanker trying to turn, the rider can gently, in time, slightly move the course of the elephant. And I think that for anyone, you know, this does affect teams quite a lot. Anyone who is maybe having emotion, problems with emotional response in a team, getting angry about things that they should be more objective about, for example. If you can start to actually understand how your subconscious behaves, then your conscious can start to control it. But it's only if you find a way to actually understand your weaknesses or how you operate deep down, the elephant, that the rider has any chance of changing its direction. And if one of those two parts aren't open to change, change can't happen. It's like a deadlock. You need both of them to be responsive. Mm, perfect. Thank you. And what would you say would be the best place for folks to contact you or learn more about what you're up to? To be honest, Actuinbox has a forum, and that's where I mostly hang out. And obviously, that's kind of limited, just talking about the product mostly. But talking about the products, you know, we're basically talking about people's problems with email and actually how they live their day. So everything's fair game. If you want to have a chat, just come along there. Andy, thanks so much. It's been a real treat. I wish you and Active Inbox tons of luck in what you're doing here. Uh, thanks, Pete. It's genuinely, it's been lovely to chat to you. And it's rare we get to kind of think so broadly about things. So this has been really nice. Okay. Well, hopefully that warning about working late and then bringing the stress to bed and then having the slumber time compromised will resonate. So you'll be extra vigilant to ensure you're avoiding that downward spiral. And once more, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, or the items mentioned, that is over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep97. And I do recommend you punch the subscribe button if you haven't already. So you'll catch folks like our next guest, Sean Douglas. He was a drill instructor who has a whole lot to say about resilience. So I hope to catch you then. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 